This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. What's your favorite animal is a question you've probably been asked since you were a kid. And like Anna Sherman, you're allowed to have a few favorites. I mean, I love dogs, but I also love octopuses. But my follow-up question to her was a bit more biblical. Between octopus or dog, one of them's going to have to go extinct. Uh, One you're going to save, what would you pick? That's when things got tricky for Anna. Uh... Well, that's tough because I know that dogs are not exactly a threatened species. But in terms of everyday enjoyment, I would have to keep dogs. She's not the only one who had trouble playing Noah, choosing which species to save and which will be lost forever. If you had to choose between dogs and cats, uh, what would you pick and why? I wouldn't be happy to see cats gone, but I am allergic to them. So, selfishly, I'd be using less Benadryl uh, as a result. One you're going to save, one's going to go extinct between Mm -hmm. um, a butterfly Mm -hmm. and a wasp. What Mm -hmm. would you choose? I wouldn't want to (laughs) choose. I wouldn't want to choose, but I'd probably choose a butterfly. A kangaroo or uh, a squirrel, what would you pick? Unfortunately, I'd have to pick the squirrel. Bunnies or, or a turtle? I feel like somehow turtles seem more important to the ecosystem, I think. Kevin House, Mary Santana, Fable Flores, and Tyla Jones all struggled to answer. And look, it's a funny question to be asked on the fly. But the dilemma of choosing which animals to save is a real one. More than 40,000 species are under threat of extinction, according to the International Union for Conservation of Nature. That's a lot of living things at risk of disappearing forever. We've got limited resources. We can't save every species. How are we going to choose? Dr. Rebecca Nesbitt is an ecologist and the author of the book, Tickets for the Ark. From wasps to whales, how do we choose what to save? Can we really do that for every species? Can we give every species the attention that's needed to try and stop their declines? From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Danny Lewis. Today, Dr. Nesbitt walks us through the ethical quandaries lurking behind the cute photos of endangered animals and the importance of realizing that there will always be trade-offs when deciding which species will survive for the next generation. That's after the break. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Dr. Nesbitt, welcome to the Future of Everything. Thank you very much for inviting me. 
since we're talking about conservation, um, I think it's important that we define the term. So what does conservation actually mean? It means different things to different people. Conservation can be about species and preventing species going extinct. It can be about ecosystems. And if you're protecting an ecosystem, it may be that actually the diversity of the ecosystem isn't what most interests you. It's what that ecosystem can provide. And sometimes people might be interested in protecting species, but they're not species that are globally endangered. They're species that just aren't doing very well locally. Uh, in the uh, UK here, our native squirrels are the cute little red ones. But throughout most of the UK now, we have the American grey squirrel, which is introduced and carries a disease that was spread to the red squirrels. And red squirrels elsewhere are doing really quite well in other places in Europe. But in the UK, because of the grey squirrel, they're not doing very well. So there's lots of conservation schemes here trying to support this local wildlife that isn't doing so well where we live. Isn't extinction just part of the natural order of things? And shouldn't we just let nature take its course? Definitely. Extinction is as inevitable as everyone's death. Extinction is part of life. However, what we're seeing at the moment is extinction rates that are elevated up to a thousand times what we would expect from the background in the fossil record. And yes, mm. you and I are flourishing despite the loss of the dodo, but we can't just expect that to continue. We rely on nature for everything from our food to climate regulation. And if we keep losing species, we can't just assume that nature is going to provide these incredible services to us. But I think a lot of people, like you kind of just alluded to there, would argue that we should just try to save them all. Why is that the wrong approach? Unfortunately, we simply can't save them all. We don't have the resources. And at the moment, we are making choices about what to save through our lifestyles, even our diets, because a lot of what we are doing has negative impacts on other species. And it means we're not making choices in a very decided way. We're just choosing what to eat without really thinking about which species are going to benefit, which species are going to lose out. So given that we are making these choices in a bit of a haphazard way without really realizing it, it's time to make sure we're making them wisely. What led you to take on this big topic? Was there a species in particular that got you interested in this idea? When I was a teenager, I did lots of volunteering on islands around the UK, in Scotland, in Wales, where there were lots of amazing seabirds like puffins and fulmers. I think the puffins have so much personality, the way they're sort of quite cocky and confident, but I could see they were struggling. And in particular, they often weren't finding enough to eat. The seas were no longer providing the food that they required. So I just became very interested in how we can tackle that problem. And can we really do that for every species? Can we give every species the attention that's needed to try and stop their declines? What factors tend to go into deciding what to conserve? One of the biggest factors is quite simply money. And that money can come from governments. It can often come from charitable donations. What is going to attract charitable donations? Often it is species that are cute. 
Conversely, it's uh, also shaped by things we hate. It would be very hard to start a charity saying, please conserve the parasitic wasp. Not many people would be donating to that. So that's almost a negative decision about what doesn't get saved. What are some of the species then that don't receive the funding that you know is necessary for their survival right now? I actually think the um, parasitic wasp is a good example. For example, we have pretty good estimates of exactly how many rhinos exist, where they are, what their requirements are. We don't know to the nearest 100,000 how many species of parasitic wasps there are. We're just so far from even doing that research with species often they're small, they're unattractive, or even people are repulsed by them. And one of the stories in my book is about a parasitic louse that we believe has gone extinct, probably due to conservation. When the bird, the Guam rail, was taken into captivity, they were all caught from the wild because they were declining, in danger of extinction if we didn't bring them in for captive breeding. When we did that, we removed their parasites. We probably caused the louse to go extinct. But parasites are just incredible, and they regulate the rest of nature in so many different ways, and we're only just starting to realize that. So there's all these little species that have huge roles in ecosystems that we don't understand, and we're just ignoring them. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the Guam rail, um, or the cocoa bird, as it's also called. Why did you choose to focus on that specific bird? The cocoa is native to the Pacific island of Guam. And not only is it a really beautiful bird, it's uh, sort of chocolatey brown with little stripes on its stomach. It also is an incredible success story. It's one of only very, very few species that became extinct in the wild and are now living wild again. Thanks to some very dedicated conservationists who realized that the Guam rail was in danger of extinction because of the brown tree snake, which was introduced to the island on a military plane by mistake. The whole island got covered in snakes and multiple species of bird were extinct or at risk of extinction. But dedicated people worked out what we have to do is take all these birds into captivity, breed them and re-release them in areas where there aren't snakes. We now live in a world with this amazing bird, which, but for a few people's determination, we would have lost. What about the Guam rail louse? Why was that lost and why does that matter? One thing that really fascinated me was I contacted two ladies who are central to Guam rail conservation and no one had ever asked them about the louse before. And that just showed how little concern was given to this species. There's a lot of talk about we must save species from extinction, but no one even noticed that this happened. One issue is that it's so specialist, its only host was the Guam rail, and numbers of Guam rails just dipped so low that there were a handful of birds left. And as for standard practice at the time, when those birds were taken into captivity, their parasites were removed. 
and people didn't stop to think about those parasites. They were just so focused on saving the birds. They didn't question the idea that we need to clean these birds off of parasites, hoping to give them the best chance of survival in captivity. Is, isn't the rail happier without them? We could interpret that question in two ways. Are we talking about the rail as the species or the rail as an individual bird? In that a species has no ability to feel happy, but a species can be more successful, can grow in numbers, whereas an individual rail can feel happy or otherwise. Uh, and maybe there's negative welfare issues associated with having a louse. But it's often very complex. So when we lose one species of parasite, we just don't know what implications, positive or negative, it will have for its host species. Regardless of how you feel about parasites in particular, conservation as an issue at large is usually framed as inherently good. But is altruism really guiding our choices of species to save? Or are we just acting out our biases? And what ecological repercussions could these decisions have on the future of the natural world? Stay with us. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. There's a lot of ways that we approach conservation. There's awareness, there's changing our behavior or other species' behavior, relocation, culling, captivity, and so on. These are a lot of them interventions by humans and are really framed as good actions taken on the endangered species' behalf. But nature's a little more complicated than that right? What are some of the questions that we should be asking ourselves before trying to intervene on behalf of a species? I think there's a lot of tension between animal welfare and species conservation. I'm going to use the example of orangutans, a very intelligent, sensitive species. Uh, In captive breeding facilities, then you're putting a male and a female in quite close proximity, and it's going to lead to a violent copulation is that okay? I think also in terms of people and what relationship we want with the environment, what are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to protect some kind of habitat that's separate from humans? Are we going to put up a fence and say, this area is for nature? Or are we going to try and live more in harmony with nature? And which people are we talking about? Sometimes there will be a trade-off between things like biodiversity and climate change. It's not necessarily true that the most biodiverse habitat will store the most carbon. Well, which is more important to us? I don't have a right answer, but this is the kind of question that we 
need to consider and not just take for granted that whatever we think is the right answer is true. So how should we prioritize species for being saved? Because it seems like you said, it's such a complicated question. And um, you know, how do you even do this without you know, bringing our human biases to this? We can't avoid the fact that we are human and that we have human biases. And to some extent, that's not a bad thing. If I say I want to save the puffin because it enhances my life, that's not a problem. I need to be aware that I'm simply saying that because people like me love the puffin, but that is a legitimate reason for saving it. (laughs) And I, I think there's no single prescription for how we should make choices about saving nature because it is so different from each case-by-case basis. The way that we need to act to save the Guam rail will be very different to how we need to act to save whales, for example. But what we can do is bring more people into the conversation. So if I was going to set up a plan to reintroduce predators into a particular area, maybe wolves, cheetahs, that I think, well, this is really important for saving that species, I need to talk to lots of people about that. And I need to get lots of different perspectives because we all have a stake in the future of the natural world. If we think of national parks in Africa, for example, where there are bans on hunting or collecting firewood, these are people's livelihoods. And without access to those natural resources, then their children can't necessarily eat. So I think we always have to remember the privileges we come from when we are making decisions about what we want the world to look like. Something you've written is that we can't use science alone to make conservation decisions. What do you mean by that? Science is incredible and is essential for conservation. We can't save the puffin if we don't know the scientific basis of what that puffin needs. Science can tell me how to save the puffin, but it can't tell me what is most important to save. It can give us information, for example, what role does the puffin play more widely, but it can't tell me things like what's more important, the life of the rats and mice I would be poisoning to eradicate them from an island and protect seabirds relative to the survival of a species. That is not a question that has a scientific answer that's based on philosophy and on our values. And I think it's important that whenever we use a scientific argument for something, we understand that this is underlaying by our values. The ultimate goal was set by our values, and science is just helping us achieve that. Yeah, and and so much of conservation is wrapped up in this language of morality. Is it possible to separate the two? I don't think it's possible to separate conservation and morality. Ultimately, conservation is about morality. What I would say is that there are some value-laden terms which aren't always very helpful. For example, the grey squirrel in the UK, which has pretty much wiped out the native red squirrel, we could call that an introduced species. It's tempting to use terms such as invasive alien. And sometimes these terms border on xenophobic. Mm. Uh, In the UK, sometimes people talk about the war on invasives. And I think some of these military analogies 
are fairly damaging because if you call a species an invasive alien, it takes it for granted that that is a bad thing. Whereas actually, there's no inherent reason why a species belongs in its historic range. And in times of climate change, we might actually need species to expand into new ranges. So I think sometimes we need to think about our value-laden terms to check are we specifically not wanting that species here for a reason or are we just anti-invasive aliens? The epilogue of your book is called Shaping Our Future, Reasons to be Cheerful. What are some of those reasons? I think one reason is simply the realization that we don't have to restore nature to a past state. We're not mourning some kind of paradise lost. We are thinking about how to shape a new and better future. So we're not doomed to failure. Plus, there are some amazingly successful stories, such as the international ban on whaling. Whales are recovering, and that ban has really been upheld internationally. It's a great example of international collaboration. But I, I would say my biggest cause for optimism is the attitude of younger people and their realization that they're thinking beyond consumerism to protecting the planet. I see young people just so inspired by the idea of tackling climate change, and that really excites me. So your book is titled Tickets for the Ark. So if you only had one ticket for this proverbial ark, what would you give it to? That is an incredibly difficult question, but I think today I might give it to the orangutan. These are such amazing, intelligent creatures, and I'm imagining a future world, even if humans don't make it, I mean, I really hope humans get on the ark, but if they don't, I would love to see other primates thriving and leading happy lives in a new world. You mean you're going to let the puffins face the flood? Oh no, oh no. Um, are you sure I can only have one ticket? <laughs> Dr. Rebecca Nesbitt, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. Dr. Rebecca Nesbitt's book is Tickets for the Ark. From wasps to whales, how do we choose what to save? It goes on sale in the U.S. on October 4th. Okay, listeners, your turn. What species are you giving that last ticket to the proverbial arc to? Let us know on Twitter. We're at WSJ Podcasts. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. This episode was produced by me, Danny Lewis, with help from Caitlin Nicholas. Fact-checking was done by Maddie Bender. Jessica Fenton is our sound designer. Scott Salloway is our supervising producer, and Kateri Yokum is the Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>